Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Radio Deutsche Welle, Going Underground, and Radio Havana, Cuba. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. In Argentina, the election of right-wing populist Javier Millet as president has been welcomed by former presidents Bolsonaro and Trump. More surprising is the election of far-right politician Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. He is a staunch anti-immigrant white supremacist who says he will lead the country out of the European Union. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. In Argentina, the election of the right-wing populist Javier Millet to the presidency has thrust the country into an uncertain future. Millet has vowed to revive Argentina's struggling economy with a series of radical economic reforms. His supporters argue that drastic change is just what the country needs. Dubbed El Loco, or the madman by his critics, Argentina has chosen a radical new right-wing leader. Javier Millet's victory comes as Argentina suffers through an economic crisis, with inflation at 140% and soaring poverty. Voters turned away from the Peronist coalition, which has long dominated politics in favour of change. It's something that many people wanted and that we're hoping to achieve. That's a change for the better that Argentina needs. It's going to be hard, it's going to be complicated, but it was going to be worse with the current government because it was always the same, nothing would have changed. Millet has promised sweeping reforms, including proposals to close the central bank and ditch the country's currency, the peso, for US dollars. He's also proposed to slash taxes and government spending, cut welfare payments, loosen gun laws and outlaw abortion, as well as close down ministries for culture, women, health and education. Millet's critics fear what his election means for Argentina's society and democracy. But enacting his radical reforms may be difficult. His party holds only a small number of seats in Argentina's Congress. President Javier Millet will need to realign alliances to get laws from Congress. Otherwise, he will not be able to rule by law. He will have to rule by decree, decrees of need and urgency, which will never be backed by one of the two chambers. So he will have to reach a compromise. 
Malay's win is a victory for the global far right. The former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, as well as Donald Trump in the US, were both quick to offer their congratulations. In his first post-victory speech, Malay said he would travel to the US and Israel before he is sworn in on December 10. With his aggressive anti-immigration and anti-Islam rhetoric, Hert Wilders is set to shake up Dutch politics. The veteran firebrand placed anti-Islam policies at the core of his party, PVV, founded in 2004. Wilders has since vowed to stop a, quote, Islamic invasion, has held competitions for cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad and has been convicted for insulting Moroccans. Brussels wants to inundate us with third world immigrants, mostly from Islamic countries. It wants to distribute these immigrants all over the European Union. And that, my friends, will be a disaster. A ban on mosques, Islamic schools, Korans and headscarves from government buildings are among the proposals on his PVV manifesto. But he sought to tone down his anti-Islamic rhetoric in the run-up to the election. Immigration was a key theme of the campaign, after the previous government collapsed in a disagreement over asylum rules, with Wilders taking a hardline stance. The PVV has pledged to deport illegal immigrants and proposes a freeze on asylum. The hope is that people get their country back, that we make sure that the Netherlands is for the Dutch again that we will limit the asylum tsunami and migration. A self-proclaimed fan of Hungary's Viktor Orban, Wilders is a staunch Eurosceptic and wants to hold a binding referendum to leave the EU. He has called for the Netherlands to significantly reduce its payments to Brussels and to block the entrance of any new members. Unlike many other European leaders, Wilders wants to stop arming Ukraine saying the Netherlands needs the weapons to defend itself. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Also available at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. Next, Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground, an interview with renowned Hungarian-born Canadian physician Gabor Maté. His books on trauma, addiction, and childhood development are well known around the world. He's an infant Jewish survivor of the Holocaust and speaks about the catastrophe underway in Palestine and Israel. He describes the trauma of youth growing up in occupied Palestine and its relation to the horrible attack by Hamas on October 7th. He explains how the European history of colonization allows American and European politicians and press to justify the Israeli slaughter of children and civilians. He questions the notion that violence is an inevitable response among humans going underground. 
From the trauma in Gaza, from British-American EU nation armed aerial bombardment, there is trauma all around the world. And one of the greatest trauma specialists in the world is Holocaust survivor Dr. Gabor Mate. He's an award-winning author who, since his last studio interview with us, even found time to interview Prince Harry earlier in the year. But today, he has catastrophe in the Middle East on his mind. You said recently that everything one says about recent events is going to hurt someone. Why is it so difficult to even talk about trauma amongst Palestinians in the parliaments of NATO countries, like your country, Canada, let alone uh, other countries in Western Europe? I think there are uh, two major reasons. Um, one of them is the reality that um, Israel, the impetus to found the state of Israel was rooted in such deep trauma of, of Jewish people in, in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, but then of course with the Second World War, in Germany as well, and uh, the European countries feel a, fear a fair bit of guilt about what happened to Jews in Europe. That's one stream. There's a fear that by talking about Palestinian trauma, you're somehow diminishing or invalidating Jewish trauma. But there's a more major reason, which is that the English-speaking countries particularly were all rooted in colonialism. They, they all, you know, whether it's United States or Canada or, or Australia, um, and of course, uh, Holland, Belgium, France, they all participated in the colonial project. What I'm saying is that these countries either were rooted in, founded in colonialism, or had colonial policies themselves. So they're more likely to identify with the colonial mindset than with the mindset of the people being colonialized. Now, it doesn't matter how you see the foundation of Israel as being rooted in Jewish trauma. The reality is that it couldn't have been established without foreign imperial control and the colonization of the land, of a land that was already populated by an indigenous people. So the colonial mindset dominates Western thinking. And so that you have this combination of historical Jewish trauma and a colonial project that to the Western minds seems perfectly natural. So from the Western point of view, they're much more likely to identify with the colonizer than with the people being colonized. The United States is the biggest empire in the history of the world. It's got, what, 800 military bases internationally. It dominates the world culturally and uh, less so with China rising, but it used to dominate it economically as well. And uh, it's the United States decided a long time ago, just as Britain decided, back in 1917 and the 1920s that it's in the interest of the British Empire to establish a Jewish entity in Palestine. I'm quoting Winston Churchill. In the same way, the United States decided that it's in its interest to have this unsinkable aircraft carrier called Israel in the Middle East. And the press always serves the interests of the imperial uh, project. So. If you look at any number of American wars, uh, Vietnam, based on a pack of complete lies, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, for example, that gave the excuse to the Americans to bomb North Vietnam, never even happened. But all the press reported it as reality. The weapons of mass destruction, which was the excuse to invade Iraq, which a five-year-old child could tell was a complete concoction. Nevertheless, the press enthusiastically trumpeted it. And so for the last, 60, 70 years, the, the press has enthusiastically trumpeted all the, all the Israeli talking points and totally ignored the occupation and the oppression and the 
repeated killings of Palestinians because it suits American imperial policy, which is what the the press uh, is subservient to. You know what? And then 10 years, 15 years later, they'll do some um, soul searching. Oh, my God, we, we made a mistake. Ellsberg was right. You know, Pentagon Papers was right. Vietnam was based on a pack of lies. Oh, they'll do some soul searching. Oh, my God, there were, were no weapons of mass destruction. But the next war that comes along, they'll always fall into line. And they're doing that right now as well. When you consider who rises to the top in this system, nobody who speaks the truth ever rises to the top. So there's a selection process that happens. By the time you get to the level of a Hillary Clinton or a, or a Joe Biden or a Rishi Sunak uh, or a Justin Trudeau, for that matter, they've been through so many processes that they have to prove their loyalty to the system that by the time they race to the top, only the most loyal get there. How do you suggest people cope with the trauma of those feeling hopeless in NATO countries arming the alleged genocide as they watch it on social media, feeling there is nothing they can do to stop it? Well, of course, the reality is that um, these mass movements that arise in response to these horrors they have their expressions and a lot of people come together like hundreds of thousands of people in Britain uh, a few days ago. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up those kind of movements, you know, and the governments don't care anyway. What I say to people is, number one, do the work. And this is for me as much as for anybody else. Do the work, speak your truth, speak it as loudly as you can. Connect with other people as much as you can. But don't be attached to the outcome. You know, don't let the outcome defeat you. Know that you've contributed to truth in the world by opposing some atrocity, but don't take it personally because historically, the good guys always lose. That's just how it is, you know? And and you have to just make accept the fact that you've contributed something. You've spoken the truth. You, you've helped to shine some light. Lose temporarily, I, I hope you mean. Sorry, well, you lose temporarily, yeah, but you've contributed to something important in the world in the long term. That's exactly my point, that your contribution has not been uh, in vain. And there's a famous Jewish rabbi who said 2,000 years ago, the task is not yours to finish, but neither are you free not to take part in it. And uh, so, so you make your contribution, but don't be attached to the outcome. We're always seeing, you know, in live action almost, the dismemberment of young children, parents digging their kids out of their rubble. And our politicians are just saying this is okay. And, and the media, for the most part, is justifying it. And there's a huge disconnect between what people are watching and what they're being told. And I think that's hard for a lot of people right now. And this is almost unprecedented. Um, it's, it's, it's impossible to compare cruelties and atrocities. And let me just say, for the record, that October the 7th was itself as an atrocity, in my view. But this ongoing daily cruelty, unspeakable cruelty that we're witnessing in the face of media support and the political class in most of the Western world is just cheering it on. 
it's the darkest thing I've ever seen in my whole life, and that's saying a lot. It's really saying a lot coming coming from you, obviously. Nothing justifies October the seventh, <clears throat> but it's not a question of justifying anything. It's a question of do we understand it, and how do we understand it, and how do we move forward to something different? And um, there's always this question of is is Israeli response to October the seventh proportionate or disproportionate? Well. Another question is, is October the 7th a proportionate response to 80 years of uh, oppression and, and apartheid and killings and massacres? So you can't begin with October the 7th. I, I firmly reject the idea that it's legitimate to kill um, unarmed people and children and, and, and old people and so on. At the same time, when you look at where that arise from, where that came from, which is, as other people have noted, has been called the world's largest concentration camp. In 2005, people are blaming Hamas. And I'm not here to support Hamas. I don't like Hamas. I don't like what they stand for, what they do, what they do to their own people. <laughs> the fact you even have but, to say that, Dr. Mate, yeah, I know, I know, I know. No, yeah, be, be, because the conversation is tilted in such a way as to make it necessary to even say that, you know. But what I was going to say was that in 2005, there was a study done in Gaza, internationally actually, looking at children in war zones. The most traumatized kids in the world were the kids living in Gaza. This is before Hamas took over. So, it's, you know, so in other words, what we have here is generations of traumatized children growing up in this open-air prison, looking ac across the fields where their families used to live and work. And when they do peaceful protests, they're picked off by Israeli snipers. You know, so why aren't we asking, was October the 7th a proportionate response to Israeli policy? Why are we asking, is Israel the bombing of Gaza proportionate to October the 7th? In the Western media, um, every attempt is made to dehistoricize October the 7th, like it happened in a vacuum. It's not a justification to say that it did not happen in a vacuum. It happened after decades of collective, brutal trauma visited on the Palestinians. That's ongoing. In my book, The Myth of Normal, which you kindly mentioned, there's a chapter on this so-called human nature. And the argument is that human nature is by necessity aggressive and individualistic and, and hostile and, and violent and so on. Total nonsense. Human nature is a range of potentials. And it's a question of what conditions give rise to what kind of potentials. If you look at the Buddha was a human being, Hitler was a human being, Jesus was a human being, Stalin was a human being, Joe Biden is a human being, and so are the people that oppose Joe Biden. So there is no human nature. What there is are systems that promote one aspect of human potential or another. But people are capable of being infinitely cruel and infinitely kind. And the question is, what kind of conversations do we need to have and what kind of conditions do we need to establish that will promote the benign unfolding of our potential as opposed to the violent and aggressive and cruel ones? So Noam Chomsky said that there's nothing more easy than to make the American people afraid. And fear is a powerful form of political control. Because when people are afraid, the rational um, parts of the mind goes offline and they go into defensive mode. In defensive mode, they're willing to put up with any kind of aggression. Now look, to be fair, 
after October the 7th, there's every reason why many Israelis will go into fear mode. I mean, something terrible happened and they lost people and, you know, now they're also doing so in a vacuum, but they don't understand the Palestinian situation at all. They're not taught it. They're taught to ignore it. Uh, but nevertheless, a lot of fear. Now, somebody like Netanyahu, who has practiced these same policies all his life, he doesn't need fear to do all this. He oppresses the Palestinians. He has them tortured. He has their villages taken over by settlers. He bombs Gaza repeatedly, killing hundreds of people. But he'll take that fear and he'll use it to justify the worst kind of atrocities. And that's what politicians do. So the Vietnam War was all based on this dominant theory that if you let the communists take over Vietnam, then they're gonna take over the whole world. So you make the American people afraid and that allows you to manipulate them into, if not participating in, well, participating in, but also condoning the worst kind of atrocities. So fear is both a genuine human response to threat, but it's also a political tool to manipulate populations with. Who are these people in Hamas? The same traumatized children that I mentioned, according to the study in 2005, we're already the most traumatized population in the world. And when most Jews they see wear army uniforms with the Star of David and, the, and, and, and everything that's being done to them is done in the name of the Jewish state and the major Jewish organizations in the world by and large line up with what's happening to them and justify it and have for decades. Do we have to identify the hatred of a Hamas member for Jewishness with historic anti-Semitism in Europe is not the same. I'm not justifying it again. I'm just saying there's nothing more natural than under those conditions, traumatized people will hate their oppressors. And if the oppressors are saying, we're doing this as Jews in the name of the Jewish people, what do we expect? And so I wasn't the only one to respond to October the 7th in a very um, mixed way. On the one hand, I thought it was horrible. And at the same time, I thought, what did we expect? After all these decades, what did we expect? Dr. Gabor Mate, thank you. That excerpted interview with Gabor Mate was by Afshin Ratansi from his twice-weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find a complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They have also posted archived interviews Afshin did with Julian Assange and many others. Search for Going Underground TV on Rumble.com. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or would like to support this listener-funded program, contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations around the world. Many, many thanks to everyone who has ever supported this show. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. 
More than 50 journalists have been killed in the first six weeks of the war between Israel and Hamas. The United Nations General Assembly President has traveled to Haiti in an attempt to stop the political and gang violence that has engulfed the island for over two years. Radio Havana, Cuba. Two more journalists have been killed in an Israeli airstrike on a refugee camp as the regime pushes ahead with its genocidal war. This, according to Palestinian media outlets, Sari Bansour was killed, along with his colleague Hasuna Salim, in a late Saturday Israeli airstrike on the camp. The two journalists lost their lives after Sari Bansour's home came under Israeli bombardment in Burej camp, which is located in the central Gaza Strip. The new fatalities bring to more than 50 the number of journalists killed in Israel's ongoing war. Israel's brutal war, which started on the 7th, following a surprise attack, believes that the Israeli regime has launched a pre-planned campaign of targeted killing of journalists in order to hide its war crimes in Gaza. The regime's airstrikes have targeted hospitals, residential buildings, mosques and churches, which are protected under the Geneva Convention. Tel Aviv has also blocked the flow of water, food, medicines and electricity into Gaza, plunging the coastal strip into a grave humanitarian crisis. On Friday, 700 Iranian news agencies, newspapers, news centers and publications condemned the unprecedented killing of civilians and reporters. They issued a statement calling for an immediate end to the Tel Aviv regime's atrocities while expressing their support for all freedom-seeking journalists across the world. They expressed hope that collective efforts would prevent the world from overlooking Israel's inhumane measures and lead to the return of the occupied Palestinian territories to their true owners. The World Health Organization, the WHO, has issued its new assessment of the situation in Gaza Strip's Al-Shifa Hospital, describing it as a death zone and the situation as desperate. The United Nations Health Organization released its report on Sunday, just a day after a short and very high-risk mission into the hospital on Saturday. United Nations General Assembly President Denis Francis is on a two-day trip to Haiti amidst UN efforts to address the country's more than two-year-old political crisis. According to information provided by his office, his agenda includes collaborating with various representatives of governmental, political and civil society groups. His visit began with a meeting with Haiti's Interim Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, both France's office and the Prime Minister's office confirmed. During his visit, Francis conveyed the international community's support for Haiti and its people, discussing the country's quest for security, democratic stability and general well-being. The Security Council, on behalf of that international community, approved a military intervention against Haiti, led by Kenya. The United Nations leader met with Minister of Foreign Affairs Jean-Victor Genieux and the Interim Foreign Minister of Justice Emilie Prouffet. Topics of conversation covered Haiti's security, the political landscape, and the challenges to re-establish a reliable judicial system. Gangs are increasingly using sexual and gender-based violence to instill fear amongst the population in Haiti. France's trip to Haiti is especially timed in the wake of the Kenyan parliament's decision to deploy 1,000 police officers to help manage rising gang violence in the country. The U.N. is presenting the visit as a, quote, gesture of solidarity and a commitment to address the multifaceted crisis facing the nation. 
Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though there's no podcast up there. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6060 or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version of at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.